Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest was Dr. Brian Mann. Brian has previously been on the uh, podcast on episode 91, which I'll link up in the show notes. Brian is the Assistant Director of Strength and Conditioning at the University of Missouri, where he has worked since 2006. Brian has many powerlifting accolades to his name in raw, single-ply, multi-ply powerlifting. Brian's also a researcher and author, having written several research publications dealing with the training of individual athletes, especially in football. Brian has written three books, Auto-Regularly Progressive Resistance Exercise, also known as APRE, Developing Explosive Athletes, the Use of Velocity-Based Training in Athletes, which has recently come out in its third edition, and The Complete Guide to Powerlifting, which he co-authored with Dan Austin. On this episode, Brian and I discussed many topics, including Brian's recent experience at Altus, where he presented at the ACP Week for Altus. We discussed about muscle physiology and some of the intricate physiological factors that can contribute to force development. And we also discussed... Many other areas, including fatigue and managing stress within athletes. This was a really great episode, guys, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Coach Brian Mann, Dr. Brian Mann, it's an absolute pleasure to have you come back to my podcast. Uh, it was an honor to have you on the last time. Um, and we did that last podcast with my old computer, and the sound wasn't quite as good, so I was so keen to get you back on again. Um, and you know, get a catch up with you. We're gonna hopefully get into topics like uh, some muscle physiology stuff they spoke on at your uh, time at the Altus ACP, and uh, maybe touch on some of uh, the, the work on stress you've done. And even for maybe some of the listeners who didn't catch us on the first show, we can always tap into some of the old uh, topics. You know, VBT obviously you're known for, and uh, APRE, which is a, a training method you've used successfully. So. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty to talk about now over the next 45 minutes or an hour, but uh, what's been new in the world of, of Dr. Brian Mann? Well, you know, just uh, trying to get things done. Uh, we're doing a lot of stuff with some 1D force plates, you know, the, the pass goes about as cheap as you can get, and uh, looking at some different jumps and uh, mid-thigh pulls, and uh, playing around with a few different things, too, on top of that, uh, and looking at the not only the number, numerical variables, but we're starting to analyze the curves. And uh, thinking about trying to see if we can slap some, excuse me, uh, slap some EMG on top of it. Uh, looking at the curve, I'm seeing some stuff, and just by visually watching it, it's like, hey, huh, that looks like it's hips, or that looks like it's knee, or that looks like that this is occurring because their knees are caving in, or uh, this has got to be, you know, something going on with the ankle or the calves that they're not firing right. But trying to look at. Uh, you know, I've been told by our bioengineer people that we can analyze the actual curve and the shape of it. I don't know how they do it, but, uh, you know, I, that's something that we're going to be looking at doing, too. And, you know, seeing if like, there's different positions and different sports and things that uh, just a simple counter movement jump. If there's like, uh, you know, is there going to be a difference between positions, like between uh, posts and guards uh, in basketball or uh, the different uh, infielders, outfielders, and pitchers, you know, uh, for uh, for baseball and softball. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's something that that's really interesting, really exciting, and I have no idea what I'm doing, and that's what makes it even more fun. Uh, is, is that uh, you know, it's it's completely uncharted territory. 
just uh, it's gr this is great because it's just bringing up some additional questions that I was going to have for you. Just you're talking about you know counter movement jump force plates, uh, and, you know from my time at Altus and the fact that you were actually there with Matt Jordan, like we seem to be very biased towards concentric metrics. I'm sure the guys at Alton spoke to you about that. Like, what are your thoughts? On, do you think uh, stepping forward with sports science, there's going to be more of appreciation of, you know, eccentric uh, force capabilities? Because that seems to be a huge determinant in a lot of sports. And you know, I've heard a lot of criticism um, from some people about, like, you know, how valuable is mid-type pull, and how valuable are some of these very concentric bias uh, measures in the weight room, and even with power outputs. What What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think that sometimes that. Just from my standpoint, and I mean, I can talk a lot better about training in general than I can about the uh, the individual metrics. Yeah. Uh, and then kind of transition into it. One of the things that I think that we have gone wrong on is that we've got this whole thing, and I, I talked about it in that ladder versus the pendulum article in Elite FDS for a couple of years back. Yeah. That everybody just kind of jumps on one thing and they ride this pendulum wave all over to this side and all the way back over yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was uh, all. Uh, power lifting, that it was all Olympic lifting, that it was all functional training, that it was all power factor training, that it was all blah, 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 VBT, so, you know, everything just all the way on the either side of the pendulum. Yeah, it was the same with energy systems. It was all like, don't exactly. ne never do aerobic training, now it's all, everything is all aerobic. aerobic. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, that we just, what we have to realize is that everything needs a tremendous amount of balance. Yeah. And, uh, if we look at only one thing, right, well, let's say there's 80 components to sport performance. If we look at one, we're ignoring 79. You know, uh, that's just the, and I, I don't know, I, I just threw the number 80 out there because there's a number 80 that's sitting on, uh, as a reference that on the paper that I'm reviewing right now, and that's that, that popped into my head. The 80 has no actual context, just, mm. just a random number. But, uh you know, there's. I think that we miss a lot if we focus only on one thing. Is the concentric important? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, the mid-dipole, why am I looking at the mid-dipole? I want to get a great total force number, and uh, I might end up getting it from something else, too. You know, with the uh, gym aware, uh, we can, you know, we can uh, do some prediction stuff. So I might look at some of the movements that they're already doing rather than doing additional tests. Uh, but I do look at some of the impulse forces there. It's just a skill. And it's seeming like, to me, it takes about three to four times uh, of them doing the testing to be able to start doing the mid-dipole correctly. Uh, mm. Maybe if, if we were better Olympic lifting coaches, that it would be different. Uh, but, you know, uh, that that's what I'm noticing for us, to get what we would expect. Yeah. You know, uh, but uh, that T-Lar, you know, that looks about right. But uh, is the eccentric important? Absolutely. Is the concentric important? Absolutely. Is the isometric, the amortization, if you will, is that important? Absolutely. So I think that we can't really just look at anything. You know, from a research standpoint, you have to. You have to be able to control for everything else, right? But I think from the coaching standpoint, we've got to realize that everything's got to be holistic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if we ignore 79 things, performance is going to suffer mm. because we focus on one. You know, I, think, uh, I think that's a very important point you make, you know, differentiating between, you know, is it research where we need to control variables versus coaching where, you know, we need a bit more of an all-encompassing sort of viewpoint on it. I, I, I guess it's it, uh, kind of, in it, like, again, get your thoughts on it. Stepping forward, 
with coaches when they're going to start doing athletic profiling like do you see do you, like do you see a case now where we're going to have like if you say to most people how do you test strength most people like one rm in the squat one rm bench just using those as just examples do you think step before that it's going to be it's going to be common sort of um a common thing to see like eccentric tests being introduced or like this is kind of or, or isometric measures or do you think that these will start becoming more uh, common in athletic profiling, if you will? I think it will as the, the price comes down. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that that's going to be one of the, the things that is uh, that holds things back. Up until, matter of fact, you mentioned Matt Jordan. Until Matt Jordan did Rob Pacey's podcast, I didn't know that you could get 1D force plates that cheap. Mm. Uh, you know, which I'm looking to get some better, bigger ones right now because you can't get the landing forces from them. It's not that it doesn't take the landing forces is just so freaking small that people can't land on it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, Rob, I, my caffeine hasn't kicked in and I just forgot what we were talking about. Uh, we were ju- ju- I, I, so I was just asking, do you think that things like eccentric and isometric measures right. will become more commonplace in athletic profiling or, or testing of athletes, you know? So like in, like in collegiate professional or even private settings, like, because so, and you made a great point. Like we, we definitely don't want to lose the forest for the trees in terms of right, like concentric measures mean nothing now. So what I'm saying is like, do you think along with the concentric measures of power outputs, like our non counter movement jumps and our counter movement jumps, even though obviously that has an elastic elastic component now and our depth jumps will do as well. But do you think there'll be more? Do you think there'll be more tests added to testing of athletes that will encompass more of a eccentric sort of emphasis and isometric emphasis? Is kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, okay, no, I, I, I got that. What what I kind of wonder and question is if we need to get additional tests or yeah. if we need to just look at doing these tests better yes. and being able to find ways to focus on the eccentric and the concentric and the isometric. And that's my question you know, too, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, like with the, the force plates, man, you know, we can look at the, the way that they produce eccentric force and eccentric rate of force development, yeah. you know, on a counter-movement jump, but most people aren't. Uh, you know, we're only looking at that drive phase, right? That you know, and the pushing, and, and you know how quick they're going up to, to peak power. Mm. It, it's all important, right? Um, you know that RSI mod, I think, is the the uh, gateway drug to it, right? Because it looks at time to takeoff, and that considered that has goes from unweighting to takeoff. Yeah. So that includes the eccentric. Now, does it really dive down and analyze exactly how that eccentric was and what the shape was? Was it steep? Was it real shallow? Did the amortization kind of, you know, lengthen out? Or was it this quick V, like Cal talks about in uh, Triphasic? Yeah, all about the V, uh, baby. That's, huh? that's what he says in the book, all about the V, baby. Yeah, yeah, it's all about the V. Uh, you know, and, and he's right, you know. And look, he they did it with a simple counter-movement jump. Yeah. So uh, I think that we need to make sure that we're – not looking at necessarily – I was horrible about this at first. It was like, well, we need to do this test for this, and this test for that, yeah, and this test yeah. for this. Dude, it, it's parsimony. How much can we get out of the least – how can we get the most amount of information out of the least amount of tests? Mm. And that's what we need to look at. We need to not look at redundancies. We're not, we need to not look at all these different things. We need to just focus in and dial down into what can we get the most information out of with the least time. Dude, with the counter-movement jumps – we can get a tremendous amount of info. It's not just about jump height. Absolutely. You know, it, Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, it costs costs a little bit of money, but dude, eight hundred dollars for uh, 
for a pair of set of uh, you know cheap dual force plates, we get a lot of info out of it. Yeah, I, I think uh, like the because again the original like jump mats used to come out. They only just used to give you like flight time and the, and jump jump height. They weren't looking at time takeoff. I mean. The first papers sort of kind of the first time the literature was coming out and saying that you know time takeoff is really something we should be looking at as well. I think a lot of people kind of saw like the the common sense now. Jesus, yeah, but like we're not actually looking at how long it's taking this person to to, to, to convert force here and then to reverse it to from the from eccentric to, to concentric. So definitely, like that was kind of the question again. I think people will, will uh, coaches now will start to have more appreciation for that. I think they will. I think people are. Uh, the the other thing I was going to ask was um. And I've asked this to um, to Dr. Raymond Flanagan, like, and I've asked a few coaches this. Do, do you think, or have you seen, like, should there be a balance between someone's non-counter movement versus counter movement versus their reactive strength index? Uh, like, like, is there a ratio that those jumps, those three jumps, should be within one another in terms of like you don't want them so like skewed, like one is way off compared to the other. I mean, when I asked Eamon at a seminar last year, he was like, they're so different like neuro, from a neurophysiological level. He's like, I don't think you'll ever get a, a quality ratio. If I'm quoting him right, if I'm wrong, Eamon, you hear this, you can, you can obviously uh, chime in and I'll, I'll rebuttal that. I think that's what he said from my memory. But the other thing too was um, then like all to speak about slow converters and fast converters. So obviously if you're a slow converter, they'll probably be better with things like a non-counter movement or counter movement and then right. when worse at the RSI, whereas obviously you're more elastic type guys will be usually the opposite you know and i know kelly baguette in his vertical jump bible kind of spoke about this and then the question becomes what do you feed do you feed their weakness or more of their strength so a couple of couple of questions there so one is do you think there should be a ratio between the jumps of a non-counter versus a counter versus a, a depth jump or sorry a drop jump or an rsi number i know i know and by the way i know depth and drops are different so natalia brikashansky i know <laughs> um, yeah and then um do you do you think then is it more just it really depends like on the, the the physiological aspects of the athlete in terms of their fiber type and are they more slow versus fast converter if we're going to use those as kind of terms you know the starting out on the ratios you know i, I don't know robin yeah. uh, like, they, they know, no no one knows i've asked i've asked everyone like no one no one's been able to answer so you're not the only one like you know yeah you know i'm just really getting into this and uh i think we got to be careful too on the squat jumps because uh the non-counter movement jump, because what we, you know, you, you look at Shepard's work, man, and he noticed that there was a imperceptible dip on the jump, and that actually was, that imperceptible to the human eye mm. was up to engage the stretch shortening cycle, yeah. and then thus going away from what you, you were looking at anyway. So yeah, yeah. I cost people with that, that you really got to pay attention on the force plate and, you know, linear position transducer as well uh, to know what, if it was a true squat jump. And then uh, I don't even know if, if, if you can do a true squat jump. Can is it even possible? Because I've heard Brett, Brett Bartholomew say a lot, like three years ago, he was talking about like non counter jump, and then he he kind of he goes, and I know there's no such thing really as non counter in that. Like nearly everyone kind of even it's not seen as you said to the naked eye. They still do some type of preload, and that probably goes back maybe to Franz Bosch's muscle slack that your body's just really trying to take all slack out before it loads the system. So. It's interesting. It yeah, it's interesting. It could be. Then, uh, yeah, no, that that's exactly right. So it's like, what are we, what are we actually looking at here, you know? And uh, and that's what I, you know, I, I always just, 
if you look back, you know, Andy Fry did a paper. I can't remember who the lead author was, but he was definitely one of the authors if he wasn't the lead whenever they were looking at trying to do uh, recreate Zatsyorsky's explosive strength deficit. They found that there was nothing that they could do because the squat jump and the counter movement jump for everybody was really, really close. Yeah, and it could have yeah. been that they had a little bit of that dip. Yeah. And uh, how do you get away from it, man? I don't know. Maybe if, you know, if, I, I don't know how Zatsyorsky started it, but maybe you know, if it was over in the Soviet Union and you could put a cattle prod right underneath their ass <laughs> that they wouldn't dip down, you know, maybe that's one of the ways that they could do it, but I'm I, not really sure. I know some coaches put a stick under the chin, like right under the chin. Like, so uh, when, when the athlete's in that quarters proposition, they just put, like, a stick literally just right underneath their chin. And obviously, then, if the athlete dips, the chin will have hit the stick. I've seen yeah. That, I've seen that done. That, that's interesting. I had never heard of that before. Now, Brian, you can, you can have that idea. Yeah. I might have to look at that and see if uh, there's a difference between, the, you know, using the stick and using the uh, – and nothing. And maybe the cattle prod too, but I don't know if the IRB will prove a cattle prod. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then what, where was the the other place we were going, Robbie? So I was just asked about the ratios and then the uh, the other question is you'll probably never will get a ratio because you know, you're know you going to have athletes who are slow converters and athletes who are faster converters. So there's always probably going to be a skew to be better at one type of jump versus another. So I suppose that yeah. was, just get, was so much more a question rather than probably – that's probably the answer or the thought process most people will go with. Just get your ideas on that. Yeah, you know, I think everybody's a little bit different. And, uh, you know, I remember one of the things you said was, you know, feed the strength or feed the weakness. Well, man, you got to kind of figure out, well, one, keep their strength their strength. Their strength yeah. is their strength for a reason, yeah. right? So it's not that you want to take the, that away from them. Uh, you know, I remember looking at, uh, man, we had this – I'm not going to say his name, but we had a pitcher here a long time ago. Very, very special. He was a very, very rich man now. And that dude had a crazy amount of external rotation, far beyond what was considered normal. Okay, So if we took away some of his external rotation, are we? what would have happened to him? Right? If we put it back into the normal ranges, yeah. well, he probably would have taken away what made him special. And then the weaknesses. Well, only bring up the weaknesses and spend the time on the weaknesses that matter. Yeah. You know, what's going to matter for performance? Uh, and that's going to be a very, very individual basis. But, you know, you don't want to take away somebody's strength because that's what makes them special. Uh, you know, like, look at Christian Cantwell. Holy cow, the dude benched 550 in high school. He benched 250 kilos in high school, right, as a 17-year-old. Uh the guy used just raw horsepower to be able to throw throw deep. And if we would have taken that away from him, would have he been able to still throw the same? I don't think he would have. Mm -hmm. If we would have been like, okay, you're strong enough. Let's focus on this, this, that, and the other. Well, is it a psychological or is it a physiological? doesn't matter because they both affect performance. Yeah, yeah. Now, if he thinks he's weak so he's not going to be able to throw well or if it's because he got weaker that he couldn't throw well. It doesn't matter which one it is. Yeah. All right, so listen, we'll get, get get into, like, again, the main reasons I want to get you on to. So you recently were at Altus at the ACP in March, so tell us what was your thoughts, what was your experiences, what did you personally take away from it, and, and then maybe talk about what you, you personally presented on. Yeah, man, you know, it was fantastic. I've been around a lot of high-level people, but never so many at the same time as yeah. far as the athletes go. Yeah. You know, that was uh, – it was just unbelievable. You sit there and you're watching. You're like, hey, that's the dude that was freaking smiling at Usain during the 200, man. Then, uh, 
you know, looking at uh, and being there looking and listening to Stu and Dan and Cheedy and everybody while they were coaching. Uh, you know, just being around Dan and hearing his comments, man, it was just unreal the way that he was coaching. And it wasn't even like uh, some of it was just, I'm not going to say off the wall, but I remember there was one time that one of the hurdlers was having a hard time with one of her hurdles. And I, I even tweeted this out. He said, uh, when she was getting frustrated, he goes, you know, the only time that there's ever a perfect race rant is in the movies. This is about, this is a chess match. And this is how well can you recover from a mistake? That's what racing is. Yeah. I was like, holy cow, that's a light bulb moment. And what to watch that she was no longer getting frustrated. She was just moving on to the next one after that. You know, it was amazing. Uh, you know, the takeaways that I got too were that, you know, the interactive, uh, uh, the interrelation between the coaches and the uh, therapy staff and the stuff that was going on, man. Uh, I can picture the guy's face, but I can't think of his name. Jazz? That, huh? Jazz? Oh, not Jazz. Yeah, obviously Jazz and, uh, and Jerry and uh, Gerald and, and all those guys uh, with Stu and Dan and Cheedy and Dustin, etc. But uh, there was one of the sprinters, oh. right, who was uh, – which I, I can picture him, but I can't remember his name, uh, that Stu was talking about. And uh, and really what it, something that just blew me away was how open Stu is. Uh, they were talking about the issues that this one sprinter was having, and I was thinking back about what they had said, uh, that what he was having from an injury standpoint, thinking about anatomy and kinesiology that I teach now, and uh, the things that they were doing from a training standpoint. And I'm like, Hey, Stu, what? He's like, I don't want to step on your toes, but what if we tried this? What if we tried releasing his lap? So what does Stu do? He goes over and sends him over with Jaws, and uh, they release his lap. The next repetition looks better. You know, Stu was just so open to anybody's input, thoughts, ideas, which was amazing. I'm like, this guy is this guy's Stu freaking McMillan, and he's going to listen to, you know, Joe Blow coming off the street. Uh you know, it was just the open communication between them that it was all about the athlete, about them getting better. And that was just, you know, that was the biggest takeaway that I had from there is that, you know, it, it's uh, the open and, and sharing. Uh, you know, Dan Path will sit there and listen and ask questions and try and learn during, you know, our presentation, uh, which was just, you know, amazing to me. It's like you're, you're, you're Dan freaking Path. You know, you're, you know, uh, there's some people that are at his level that, they show up to speak and then they go off and do their own thing. They'll go eat lunch and, you know, get away from everybody else. But here he is trying to learn, uh, which was just, it, it was very, very refreshing, I guess is what I, I should say. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, so those were the, the main takeaways was just the interact, you know, how well things can get done uh, whenever they're all, I guess I would say uh, just working together so well. Uh, you know, the, it, it was just like a completely flat organization. Um, not flat meaning like they didn't have peaks and valleys, but flat meaning that there was nobody really above anybody else. Yeah, yeah it was great. Uh, yeah, yeah, so that hierarchy wasn't there. And then, uh, you know, so that, that was amazing. And I highly recommend anybody to go out there. In between, uh, not just for their uh, – let me go out there for their, the information – obviously in the education, but then you go and you see 
how does a high level work? And, you know, it's just fantastic. Very fantastic to see. And I always love anytime somebody does something very, very well, I love going out and checking out what they do and, uh, you know, and seeing what I can take away from it. And, you know, that, there was a lot that we could take away from out there. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and I also took away that that Phoenix Sun is very, very hot, and I had forgotten about that. <laughs> uh, you know, it was a February, early March, or something like that. And it was already ninety degrees out there. I got my, I, I got sunburned, uh, you know, from from just the morning. So, uh, but it was a, a fantastic, fantastic experience. And did you uh, did you get an opportunity to like get more like kind of one on one time with Mac Jordan and Stu and Dan and? You know, if so, um, like Matt had already left, oh, so we had just mi- missed each other. Okay. Uh, I came in later in the week because uh, it, teaching, uh, yeah, I couldn't take off uh, more than. I've had a really, really busy semester as far as speaking goes, and if I missed, I, I didn't feel like I could uh, look the students in the eye and miss another class. Uh, but yeah, no, I got a lot of one-on-one time with Stu. Uh, you know, I, I not so much with Dan, but Stu, Cheedy, Dustin, and those guys. And, uh, man, I just love sitting there and just, you know, BSing with them, you know, yeah. and talking about some of the different people that had been there and uh, some of the stories about some of their elite-level decathletes or high jumpers or whatever that were just, you know, off-the-wall type things. And it was just uh, great seeing the uh, the humanistic side of each of them. Uh, and Dan, too. I didn't get a little one-on-one time Dan, uh, with Dan. Uh, he wasn't there as much with the things that he's got going on right now. Uh but, uh, you know, it was just that, that humanistic point where it's not like there's some person up on a pedestal. They're a real person, and you can have uh, really interesting conversations with them about. I can't even remember what Stu and I were talking about half the time, but it was just, you know, laughing about just everything. Yeah. It's, um, a, it's a, in fairness, you know, from obviously my internship there, it's a very open environment. And yeah, it's uh, but it's one thing I will say is like there's so much going on all the time. It can be hard to pin down people sometimes. But, yeah, uh, yeah, it's like it's just it's just like it's like 100 miles an hour stuff. But there, they're extremely open in terms of anyone can show up. And, um, I have, it's it, it is it's a great learning environment for sure, definitely. And I highly recommend the ACP week for anyone and the and the PTP. Um, maybe Brian, get into what you you presented on specifically and start talking a little bit about you know this this muscle physiology and. As I was saying to you offline, you know, I see Jason Hetner was he was tweeting out things about like you know how more sort of uh, you know your your power based type athletes they seem to have you know uh, they're they're faster at um, releasing calcium from the sacrophagic reticulum into the myofibril or the yeah, into the into myofibril where the where the actinomycin is in the myofilaments. Yeah, you know, and like it's fun, like stuff like that. I'm a nerd on because I like you. I teach physiology like one week out of every month to my students, so uh, all that stuff like I'd be very familiar with. And it was just it just piqued my interest because I, I just absolutely love physiology. It's one of my favorite things to read and study. So maybe just speak about what you spoke on and, and maybe get into some of the physiology stuff and any sort of research or reading you're doing around that. Yeah, you know, uh, it really. And I could be off on this, and I could be oversimplifying it. There's a good bet that I probably am. But whenever we're looking at the series elastic component, Mm. there's really about four ways that it's producing force. And the first is through, well, there's two through myofibril, myofibrillar, if you want to, whatever you want to call it. And then there's other two that are more neural. Okay, so if we start out on the myofibril, we've got the, you know, the just ability of it to produce force with the actin and myosin. Right. So 
we can increase the cross-sectional area of the, of the myofibrils themselves. We can uh, we know that through training eccentrics, we can make that myosin head a little bit more resistant, uh, that it can withstand higher forces before it breaks apart from the act. Mm -hmm. So we've got, you know, that is one of the ways that we can enhance force. Then we've got, let's look at a neural way. Uh, and the neural uh, is, first one is Heinemann size principle, right? The, about the being able to uh, preferentially recruit the high threshold motor units, okay? And start those first. Um, and I guess if we backed up, how do we, how do we enhance the myofibrillar adaptations? Well, one, just traditional resistance training where we're focusing on increasing cross-sectional area, you know, hypertrophy, our traditional strength work, that base strength, that 65 to 80, 85%. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously eccentrics for, you know, strengthening the myosin head to keep it off of, uh, keep it, uh, better tolerating forces from breaking away from the active. Heinemann size principle. Henneman, however it's actually pronounced, uh, is that, you know, basically 90% and above, right, for that maximal motor recruitment. Yeah. And then we've got uh, another neural, which is uh, rate coding, and it is the ability to turn on the uh, how fast you can cause that contraction to occur, right, from the neural side of things, where that uh, impulse comes down, and is it how much more quickly can you cause a fused tetanus, how much more quickly can you go from contraction to relaxation within the same muscle, okay, within those same muscle, individual muscle fiber, yeah. within the individual muscle, all the fibers working within it for that, was that uh, intramuscular coordination, yeah. and then the intermuscular coordination of how all the muscles act together and how quickly they can uh, go about it. And that's really uh, VBT, uh, ballistics, etc. That's where you're really getting that. And then the last one is the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And the function of the sarcoplasmic reticulum is for the uh, release and reabsorption of calcium. Yeah. And if we remember that the calcium actually comes out, and it, uh, I always get it messed up and backwards, so somebody will probably tell me I, I said it wrong. It, it's okay. I'm wrong all the time. Ask my wife. Uh, the uh, calcium comes in and it unlocks the troponin, which pulls the tropomyosin away from the actin to allow a binding site to be shown, right, to be to occur. That's all correct, and, by the way. What'd you say? That's all correct. You're right, Matt. Well, fantastic. Well, so the faster that we can do that, the faster that we can get the binding sites popping up, the faster that the contractions can occur. And go. really about the only way to affect the sarcoplasmic reticulum tends to be sprinting. So, you know, we've got four different ways for just the series elastic component. Uh, to enhance force production. So, and the way that I, I look at this is, dude, we've got to have a three, at least three, if not all four, present in the training program at any given time to enhance the series elastic component. I'm not negating the parallel elastic component uh, whenever I'm talking about this. There's so much about it that uh, I, I, I want to say we, but it could just be me that I don't understand about with the fascia and the neural networks within the fascia uh, that I don't, I, I'm not talking about it. I'm not negating it. I'm just not talking about it because if somebody asks me a question on it, I, I don't know well enough to be able to answer most of it. But of course, we've got the, you know, passive tension that occurs from the, the collagen, from the, uh, what is it, the circle limbs that surround each muscle fiber, 
uh, and the skin and adipose and all that stuff from compression. You know, that obviously plays into it with the parallel elastic component. Uh, and that's that's pretty simple. It's the fascial stuff that I don't uh, don't know if I understand well enough. So just uh, with, with the with the sacrophagic reticulum and the rate it releases, releases calcium, you're saying sprinting seems to have the biggest effect on that. Is that correct? Yeah, that is absolutely correct. And is there yeah, sprinting? Go ahead. Have you have you got anything to like? Like not, I'm not doubting. I'm, is there any stuff to read up on that, Brian? That you can send on, or is there a paper? Or? Absolutely. The NSCA Essential Strength Conditioning uh, Volume Four. Uh-huh. It's got all of this stuff in great detail. You know, I. Uh, you said that to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the second time you said it to me. You said it to me offline. So the way you said it is like, I told you this already. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm not trying to say it like that. But it's just you know, everybody always thinks that uh, this is one of the things that really irks me. Yeah, and it's that people think that just because something is basic, they don't need to read it, they don't need to understand it. Yeah. Well, you know, having to teach this uh, sports performance and conditioning class, right? Basically, what I treat it as is a CSCS prep class. I, you've got to dig through the basics, and you've got to completely understand the basics so well because the students can ask any freaking question they want. Yeah. Uh, the sarcoplasm reticulum, though, in and of itself, that comes from Duncan French's chapter, and uh, I'd have to go pull the book off the shelf and look at the exact title of the, the chapter. But uh, and he references uh, references it in there for the, the studies, the papers that, that talk about that more more in depth. But uh, you know, but you've got to understand the basics, and if you understand the basics. You understand how the more advanced things work. You know, there's yeah. a lot of people who go out there and they invent their own method. They say, you know, I, I invented my own method called X Y Z. Well, dude, you didn't invent shit. You know, you uh, your your invention is something that people have been doing for over a hundred years. Mm. So, uh, you know, the uh, the post activation potentiation stuff, right? Man, that's been around for hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah. You know, you look at uh, this whole functional isometric things that comes up. Fred Roll wrote about that in the first strength and conditioning, NSCA Essential to Strength and Conditioning text back in, was it 1981 or something like that? Uh, you, you, mean, uh, you, you can get old man strength books from the from the like the late 19th century and they're doing isometrics in the fucking things, sure. Yeah, man. They, it, it's just absolutely absurd to me that people are, you know, look, why don't we study things and why don't we read yeah. And then try and build new things off of that rather than thinking that uh, you thought of something that was never been done before. And no, actually, it has been done. It's been done for centuries. It's just that you don't want to pick up a book and read anything about it. So It's, it's funny you say that because anyone who's listened to the podcast over the last, let's say, 18 months, two years, definitely the last 18 months, has probably heard me talk about that like – like my reading over the last eight months has been more and more like textbook based and going back to the basics and making sure that I actually understand the principles of, of you know, of the, of the base sciences. So in terms of sports science, you know, reading up my biology, reading up my physiology, and then like, you know, going back and looking at my anatomy and my kinesiology. Because I think, uh, I, I think, uh, oh, what's that noise? That's your email again, was it? No, I, I didn't hear anything on my end. No, oh, I don't know what that was. I, I think uh, I, I think a, a reason for that is because we're in a, a, a social media society where everything's about instant gratification. So a lot of people are, are wanting to just skip like skip these steps of like you know studying the basics, stu- making sure that they understand the principles behind the 
the, the professional fields that they're within. So I think that, that that's happening an awful lot where, you know, people like uh, are just, they're not getting the basic understanding or studying the, the, the textbooks or the physiology. So I know I'm guilty of that because I didn't go to college or do an undergrad. So I'm having to go back now as an older coach and, and making sure that I get a, a good uh, knowledge and understanding in these areas. Yeah. You know, and I'm actually in the same boat that you were. My, uh, None of my degrees were in exercise physiology, so you know it's all self-taught, and uh, you know that that I almost think that's a strength too. Is that you know you you're coming back and you're looking at the basics, but you're looking at it possibly from a different point of view. And uh, but yeah, yeah, it's just everybody's got to get the basics. You're absolutely right. The instant gratification is everybody wants to be patted on the back since they've got a uh, they came up with a new method. No, yeah, yeah. no, you didn't come up with a new method. It, it reminds yeah. me of Bob Alejo. Tell me what it is, and I'll tell you what we used to call it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just, it, it drives me absolutely yeah, mad. It's, it's this idea of principles versus methods again. Like, you know, it's, uh, and like uh, Emerson Hollis has that famous saying, you know, that, you know, like, there's, and I, I don't I'll have the quote in front of me, but he's basically saying, like, you know, if, if, if a man only has methods and he doesn't grasp principles, he's basically doomed to fail, you know, because it's, it's principles that drive the boat and everything. Like, Methods are a dime a dozen, but it's principles that will never ever change. And then the other thing, actually, right. the other thing I was talking about to, to James Smith there about three weeks ago in a podcast, and that episode will be up soon too. Uh, this idea of that he's like, for new knowledge to come into existence, it has to be built off old knowledge. So it's, it's fundamental that you have a grasp of these fundamental principles if we are to step forward as a, you know, as a as a as a species in in terms of evolution, and also within professional fields, whether it be medicine or nutrition or sports performance so it, it's critical that we have the basic understanding of the science and, and the, the basic principles that underpin our profession absolutely no 100 percent uh, just uh, right uh, with the size principle uh, interesting to bring that up too because i've spoken about this with a few coaches too and obviously the size principle says you, know, you go from the slow twitch to the fast twitch and then as the fast twitch you, see, you go back to the slow twitch but within um within a book it's uh the high performance no, the physiology, uh, physiology for high performance training. I think that's it. Or high, high, no, the physiology. I'll, I'll get the title down in a second. It's, it's by Duncan McDougall and, and your man Sale. Those two physiologists. But within in that textbook, they talk about the um, violation of the size principle, where like you can preferentially skip over the type ones to type two. Is that possible? Have you seen seen any literature on that, or what? What's your thoughts on that? They call it, and within their textbook, they actually call it, like, there's a section called the violation of the precise principle, and they seem to think that it is a mechanism that can happen, or that it's something that we should seek to do in, in sports, where rate of force development is a, you know, a determining factor. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen that, and I've actually, I believe I saw it in super training, uh, first. See, it's not new and at all. Where I, uh, yeah, where they were talking about, uh, yeah, being able to turn on the high threshold motor units before the type 1s. Something new. Uh, Physiology. Oh, you know what? Uh, Patrick Ward was talking about that one. That's on my list of books to get. And I've, read. I've read a cover to cover. You see all my little stickies on it. So it's just for the for the listeners. They they won't be able to see this. So the book is called The Physiology of Training for High Performance, and the two authors are Duncan McDougall and, D- and Dibby Sale, two physiologists. They're Canadian-based physiologists from McMaster yeah. from from McMaster University, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. It's a, uh, it's a beautiful book because. It's it's a textbook, but it's not like it's not a big lumpy textbook, so it's easy to carry around in your bag or whatever. So it's it's really really good. I I really enjoyed. It. I read it all last year, and 
some of the information it was just amazing. I, I need to reread it again because there was so much information in it. But they spoke. Yeah, about part that. of me wants to just uh, see if I can request a reference copy because I don't think my wife would uh would think too highly of seeing probably a hundred and forty dollar textbook coming across my credit card statement. I know, actually, so, uh, that book now I don't think was too expensive, uh, if I remember correctly. I think it was like $60, $70. I could be wrong, but it, I don't think it was over 100 that one. That one yeah, maybe I can sneak it in on a, on a credit card statement. She won't see it. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. She won't listen to this, so nobody uh, nobody who knows my wife, nobody tell her. You know, let, let's let's leave my uh, quest for knowledge open. I could edit, I could edit that, but anyway, if we need to. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be fine. Um, no, but yeah, that size principle there. Yeah, so, uh, you, have you seen stuff on that that it, it can be overrided or violated in terms of type two or switched on first? Yeah, you know, I, I remember seeing it in SIF, and I think I might have remembered seeing it in Zatsiorsky, and that's where I first got that from. Uh, you know, that I think that that's. And if you look at uh, power lifters and weight lifters, are they turning on the slow thresh, uh, the the low threshold, the slow twitch units first? No, they're freaking. You've got to have that high impulse. Yeah. So you're really, you know, cranking it on. I can, I think that it can absolutely happen through training, yeah. uh, and I think that that is one of the reasons why we see that. Uh, if you look back to that old uh, Kramer uh, Gatorade Sports Science Institute newsletter number 53, 55, something like that, it's got the three lines and it's the graph on the uh, the. Uh, I, I present on it all the time, so I'm trying to picture it in my head. It's got uh, the untrained individual, the explosive ballistic individual, and it's got the heavy resistance strength trained individual. It's got a, a non-rate limited, and it's got the 200 milliseconds one. And obviously at the uh, non-rate limited, you know, out at like 500 or 1,000 milliseconds, I think it's 500 is what it goes out to, it shows that heavy resistance strength training is king, explosive ballistic is second, and untrained is third. Well, then what it's really trying to illustrate is that 200 millisecond point is that that uh, – Explosive ballistic is far high and above everything else, and then you've got the heavy resistance strength training, and then the untrained. Well, the reason why I go back to that and why I'm talking about that is, if you couldn't preferentially recruit those high threshold motor units, I think that you probably would not have that gap between untrained and heavy resistance training. Yeah. Right, and it's a bigger gap. Because that explosive ballistic training, I think that that is another way that you can uh, preferentially recruit those high threshold motor units. Just uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, that that's it. Just going going back to the um, the physiology, the muscle physiology there in terms of force production. So obviously, right, we, we've intramuscular coordination, which is the coordination between the individual muscle fibers, and then within that, we have motor unit recruitment, rate coding, and synchronization. Um, and then we have intermuscular coordination, which is the coordination between individual muscle groups, agonists, antagonists, uh, and their, their, their co-contraction around joints during certain activities and the relation to one another during certain activities. Um, so just, just, uh, are you saying that like heavier strength work is better for intra and inter than is more like our ballistic BBT work? Is that what you said? Is that correct? No, that's not what I was saying. I said the heavy is just being able to turn on and get those high threshold motor units just, faster. Just, just pure motor unit recruitment. Uh, yeah, I think. And then yeah, ray, can... ray coding will be our dynamic effort stuff, yeah? Yep. Yeah, dynamic effort, ellipse glyphs, jumps, and then uh, possibly plyometrics. Syn synchronization? Yeah. 
yeah, rate coding will be synchronization as well. Well, yeah. No, I was just just wondering. It just it, physiology kind of for the nerds that are listening to. And then it, with intramuscular coordination, is that just more so? Is it is it all that is it the strength and is it is it ballistic type work and then is it more is it more about the sport specific movement as well in terms of like is it, I suppose there has to be a specific specificity element to that in terms of how the agonist and antagonist relate to one or like it's obviously going to be task dependent too. You know the yeah I, I think that we're getting into another different aspect where you're going there and I'm, we're we're looking at general and special movements. Yeah. So from the physiological standpoint that that, that rate coding and the intramuscular coordination uh, that's uh, that's just that that speed uh, you know how fast you can do it between uh, between the muscle within the muscle and between the muscles. Yeah, yeah. And then whenever you're looking at the agonist antagonist etc and improving that that's, uh, you know, I'm actually, I just submitted an article to uh, Chris Glazer on that that actually is kind of a response to the people thinking that I pissed on the Holy Bible whenever I said that uh, quarter and half squats transfer better than full squats to sprints and jumps. Not that the full squat didn't transfer. People read that wrong. Uh, you know, and uh, in talking about, you know, the initial periodization uh, things that, like Matt Bayev, it's like, what if, you know, the... Intensity could just mean quality, and that you're increasing your uh, exercises in their SPP phase. Because if we look at all the Soviet stuff, they went from uh, look at Bondarchuk, look at uh, well, not Bondarchuk in particular because he hates everybody else, but look at the uh, Yuri stuff, Matveyevs, Medvedevs, Romans. They would do things like you know, in GPP phase, it would be full squats, SPP. It would be things quarter and half squats, step yeah, ups, it's, lunges, it's, things like that. It's so a, it's all got to do. It's all got to do with context. You know what I mean? I think that's the thing. absolutely. Yeah, it's always like I say this all the time to the students in the college teach that like everything just comes back to context. You know, like so who are we talking about? You know, like what time of year is it? What block of training? If we're talking about training, and then like the same when we start talking about nutrition, it's like context. Like the nutrition one's always like, you know. Are carbs bad? It's like, well, first of all, what do you mean by a carb? Because broccoli technically is a carbohydrate, but then so are like Skittles and sweets and stuff. And then who are you talking about? Are you talking about someone who's like shredded with loads of muscle mass and low body fat? Or are you talking about a diabetic who's overweight and has high blood pressure and cholesterol and a lot of shit ton of medications and who's always, yeah. in, who's, who's always in a caloric surplus? You know, like it's, it's too, and can't handle their blood sugar. Like it's always got to come back to, to context. But just, just this, um, just wrapping up on this muscle physiology. So, like, again, so just again, maybe just for listeners, I love, I love talking about science. So, to me, so to me, in intramuscular coordination, then is there, is there motor unit recruitment, our rate coding, and our synchronization, and then intermuscular coordination to me was always the coordination between muscle groups, uh, as yep. in the agonist and things. So, just making sure I'm getting that right. And then, in terms of our training, then it sounds like you're making an argument for that not an argument, you're, you're making a good point that really we need to be always kind of having some element of strength, some element of explosive uh, strength or uh, elastic reactive strength, power work, ballistic work, and an element of speed in our program to be able to to be able to hit all these different aspects of coordination, yeah. whether it be intra or yeah. inter. That's absolutely right. And if I look back to the programs that were the had the best results, they had, they all had aspects of all of them. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't matter if it was some simplistic design, that, oh, well, we had heavy deadlifts, we had squat jumps, we had sprinting, uh, you know, we had, uh, and we had some hypertrophy work in there. Yeah. Oh, wow, we made our best gains in speed and power during those phases. 
And when you say eccentric work, Brian, are you, like, just for the listeners, are you talking, like, slow eccentrics with strength work, or are you talking about fast reactive eccentrics where you're dropping and rebounding, or... So what do you mean by eccentrics there? When we were, we were talking about the axis, uh, about the myo chain head, and the fact that eccentrics can can help that uh, to unhook quicker. Now here's a, a theory that I have that's nice. unfounded, and I think it goes. I like theories. Uh, I, 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 like I think theories. it's global. I like right theories. that it basically that the that you first start out with slow adaptations, and then whenever you quit seeing a response to that. You go to fast, I'd oh. say uh, slow adaptations, the slower movements. Just like uh, with, you look, look at uh, strength, right? Strength improves speed and power for a while, and then whenever it quits, you've got to achieve higher velocity stuff. I think that uh, initially you could simply do slow eccentrics on squats, and then I think that you're going to have to eventually end up doing things like uh, depth jumps and plyometrics that have got that quick reversal, that uh, that. Uh, that force decentric to isometric to concentric you know, with the amortization phase. And in the middle there probably lies some of the stuff with the flywheels. Uh, mm. that, you know, uh, but do I know that for sure? No, I don't even have a flywheel. Uh, so you know, that's something that I want to get and play with and, and see where the adaptations. Uh, but uh, you know, I think that we've got – Will they all work? Yeah, and I think they all work differently at different times. If you're already well adapted to the high-speed stuff, I don't think the moderate speed and the slow speed will have the uh, adaptation. Yeah. Uh, but I think that what we also start doing is not just focus on the concentric, but you know, have a controlled eccentric. So we're not dive-bombing on the squats in the early training phases, like in the beginner stuff, that everything is controlled on the eccentric and comes up on the concentric normally. Uh, you know, I don't think that uh, I think that we get caught up even uh, even in the lower levels of lower levels in the the initial phases of training with the uh, love affair of the concentric, and we kind of lose that eccentric there. So then that's why we've got to play so much more in the catch up. I say we. I know that I did that in my younger years. Mm. So you know, thinking that there's this one silver bullet and this is what you know going to cause the athletes to be better. Well, yeah, they might have gotten better on one part, but then they got better worse on the other 79 uh so you know that just everything needs that balance uh and that we've got to go with balanced training earlier on and then uh whenever there's an area that needs to be fixed and addressed that we just alter training a little bit yeah right like i i presented at altus and i think i've mentioned this in the vbt book uh that if you look at my workout i, I presented a workout that i had for throwing and I'm the, everybody knows me as the VBT guy, right? Which, you know, I'd like to think I'm more than just velocity, but, you know, maybe not. Uh, on my workout for the entire week, I had three exercises on there that utilized velocity. I had two more that might later on. They didn't at that point because the athlete's technique sucked on the jerks and the snatches. So we needed to improve that rather than giving them one other thing to look yeah, at. So... Out of an entire week in a power phase, the VBT guy had five exercises. Five. That's it. Five. Over the course of five days of training, I had five. Up to five. And it only had three listed. That's a small amount of the training. It's not everything. Not everything is VBT. Not everything is eccentric. Not everything is, you know, you've got to have balance is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. 
You know, you need to have the jumps. You need to have the strength. You need to have the speed, the, the sprinting. You need to have all of that in there in some sort of balance. Yeah. The uh, original old Soviet work actually said that, you know, you needed to have about 50% of your training being speed strength work, however it happened to be, if it was jumps, if it was sprints, or if it was traditional resistance training. Where did, where, uh, where did you get that now, that figure? Uh, it was a 1966 Soviet sport review. Okay. Uh, I can, if I pull up my email, I can actually find the article. Hold on. Now we got to let the email open since I closed it for the dinging birds. Yeah, might get some dinging birds here, guys. Yeah, uh, the dinging birds could also be just the sound of uh, the stuff going on in my head. But uh, you never know. It is that, that crackly sound. That, that, that's coming on again. That, well, I don't know, maybe it was. What's that crackly sound? Yeah, I don't know. And it could be the fact that I dropped my mic earlier today. Uh, and hopefully it's not that my mic was so bad that uh, it's messing everything up. Soviet Sports Review, 1966, Development of Speed, Strength Qualities in Youngsters, Theory and Practice of Physical Culture, 3, uh, colon, 72 to 74, uh, 1963, by O.B. Federoff. Nice. So... There you go. There's the uh, the reference for those who uh, want to check that out. It's you know it, it, it kind of brings us back to like vertical integration from from Charlie Francis in terms of you know you you train everything all the time but you just emphasize one particular area within your program or you're emphasizing one particular physical capacity wider maintaining or introducing all the other uh, physical capacities and components within your program. So it's uh, absolutely you know it's it's and, and if you look at the kind of nearly all the sort of the, the great sort of programs, they always seem to have an element of everything within their program. You know, even like Bondarchuk with his exercise classifications are always within the, the system at all times throughout, throughout the training yep. cycles. Um, just w one thing there you touched on, obviously physiological cross-sectional area is a huge area that we can manipulate as coaches in terms of force. In terms of hypertrophy training, do you have any ideas on rep ranges and this idea of Meyer fibrillar versus sacroplasm uh, you know, functional versus non-functional. Because I hear people saying, oh, well, there's, there's no such thing really as sacroplasm versus myofibular, or it isn't as black and white as that. And obviously nothing is black and white, but have you any thoughts on that or looked into anything on like hypertrophy? And obviously with athletes, we're always trying to induce hypertrophy where we add contractile proteins, you know, so that, you know, elements that can actually add to force development. Yeah, I can tell you that this, that uh, if you go into a gym and you look at bodybuilders, there's a lot of them that are doing... Dumbbell benches with 40-pound dumbbells, right? And they're going, you know, just working on the tension, and they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you see them go over, and, uh, you know, they look like they are you know, just some massive, strong dude. And then they can't even bench 315, right? So something's going on there. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we, uh, you know, look at the biopsies, this is where they got it from, that there was a bigger gap between the sets of myofibers. Uh, I think that that is done through uh, hormonal responses, uh, you know, in the increasing the lactate causing a growth hormone response, uh, you know, with that, with the low rest and everything like that, that the body just gets taxed in a different way. I think that there's absolutely functional and uh, non-functional hypertrophy. Okay. Uh, I think that's, that uh, appropriate training, that's why we've, we've got to have appropriate training, mm. you know, otherwise that we're, uh, you know, 
they say big ain't strong, strong is strong. Well, any mass that we put on the athlete, they need to make sure that it is able to uh, you know, do the correct thing. And that's part of also period. You know, what some people would say is part of periodization or you know vertical integration is that uh, you never want to get too far away from anything so that uh, are could there be a delayed transformation effect? Absolutely, right? But uh, at the same time, I don't think that you know what, let's, let's actually take a real-life example. So, uh, you know Dave Tate? Of course. So Dave Tate started out in powerlifting. He went to bodybuilding, and then he went back to powerlifting. So during his body, you know, his powerlifting phase, I think he was like a 470 bencher or something like that. And then he goes into bodybuilding. And he gets up to the point where he can do 405 for 10 on bench press. Comes back to powerlifting. And if you're thinking 405 for 10 on bench, which you ought to be, and that's raw, it's 475, 480, whatever it was, it was, that was with a shirt. He benched only like 440 or 450 for a single at a meet. So, you know, and that was with 12 weeks of preparation. What is that saying about the muscle that he put on? If he took, if he did a cycle, a powerlifting cycle, after doing bodybuilding for a while, and he's still weaker than he was. However, for tens, he could knock it out of the park. Well, I think what we're looking at is that the type of muscle uh, that he had put on was non-functional. Uh, over time, did that change? Yeah, it did uh, through the you know specific training. But I think that we've got to realize is that uh, adaptations are very, very specific. You know, it's specific adaptations opposed to man. Yeah. That's very. It's right there on the main principle. That governs all training. That uh, if we're doing, you know, non-functional hypertrophy, where uh, that's great and all for some people uh, for bodybuilding, but I don't think that that's necessarily what's best for athletes. Now, you know, the rep ranges for hypertrophy. Let, let's get in there. In uh, one of the things that I've noticed, and uh, yeah, I, I, this is in my dissertation, but I've never put out an article on it. Uh, why I don't know. Uh, for sheer laziness, probably. But uh, for our athletes, basically the people that were true ectomorphs, they didn't respond well to the traditional hypertrophy ranges. Mm. You know, that 6 to 12, 8 to 12 repetitions is what you, you know, constantly see as the sweet spot for hypertrophy. They actually responded better and put on more, more muscle whenever they were doing uh, lower uh, volumes and higher intensities. And I think that... Uh, are, and that just goes to illustrate that uh, there are no specific perfect magic rep ranges. For 80% of the team, that 8, that, uh, eight to 12 was appropriate. For that, uh, you know, that, small, that smaller percent, that 30%, uh, 20%, whatever it is, that were the true ectomorphs, they only put on muscle whenever they did lower volume and higher intensity. So I think that uh, in one respect, somatotype doesn't matter because for the mesomorphs and the endomesomorphs and the pure endomorphs, it didn't matter, and the ecto uh, ectomesom. But for the pure ectos, it did, right? That's, uh, uh, that, that, that's surprising now that because I've read some of that before, and usually like uh, whenever it came to ectomorphs, it was always that they did better actually with higher volume and lower intensities and then the mesos were in between and then the endos were kind of like more towards the higher intensity lower volume that's that's only the bit i've seen on it now 
And, yeah. Uh, so it's funny that you see kind of the opposite with the echo there. They do better with higher intensity and lower volumes. Yeah, you know, I think it's that uh, doing the higher volumes makes them more catabolic. Yeah. Uh, because that these guys are uh, athletes. So what do they have? They've got practice going on. They've got skill improvement. They've got conditioning. It's not just pure lifting. Yeah. Now, if yeah. it were just pure lifting, would it be different? Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. But uh, I don't know because I've never worked with the lay population. That's it. It's interesting. Very, very interesting. Uh, Brian, um, just wrapping up there, uh, you, you've done a, a lot of stuff on stress and stress of the athlete. You spoke about on Martin Bingsley's podcast. Maybe you just want to touch into that briefly and what, what sort of work are you doing around stress and, and managing stress within athletes? Well, what basically the work that we that I did was uh, a paper called The Effects of Academic Stress on Illness and Injury in Division One Football uh, that came out. Uh, might have been... Oh, hell, I don't remember. It's been a while. I uh, went published ahead of print back in 2015, and I don't know whenever it, it went into print. I should know. You'd think that me being a professor and an academic, I don't care about that sort of thing. But yeah, come on, Brian. Get, I don't, the, get the finger out, will you? Yeah. Like I, yeah, I don't, I don't get it, uh, you know, some of this stuff. But uh, they, the long story short, uh, what we had found was that athletes who started, who played, were more apt to get hurt during a test week than training camp. Wow. And then during, you know, any other test week. Uh, any other, I'm sorry, regular uh, regular week academic. Uh, so there was 3.19 times as likely to get hurt during a high academic stress and 2.84 during uh, training camp. It's like, holy cow, you know, the pin really is mightier than the sword. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, that just, what does that tell us? Well, that tells us that academic stress is, in fact, a stressor, and it is very, very important and potent uh, stressor, and we can account for it by simply looking at a calendar. Uh, we, you know, and some people will come back with a rebuttal. It's like, was it actually the academic stress? Was it the change in diet? Was it the change in hydration? Was it the change in sleep? Guys, does it matter? Yeah. Dude, if I know that I can look at a calendar and have a red flag that says, Hey, y'all, we better back off a little bit this week or people are going to get hurt. Who gives a rip on what exactly it was? The academic stress is the overarching theme. Yeah. You know, uh, and even, you know, we can go even uh, with a, a different example of that because, you know, uh, becoming a, a starter is a stressor in and of itself. And a study by Petrie done in the 80s or 90s found that they were three to five times as likely to get hurt whenever they were uh, becoming a new starter than an established starter. And one of the things that uh, I think I talked about on Martin's podcast was with the women's soccer, right? We were going into midterms. We had a freshman and a senior who were listed as even, essentially, talent-wise, skill-wise. They were listed as even. It's not the greatest year in the world, so let's go ahead and let's get the freshmen some more development so that, you know, in the future they will probably have a much higher ceiling. I looked at the coach and I said, well, that's not a good idea this week because we're in midterms. And he's like, you know, so coach, if you would wait till next week, you know, uh, she's three times as likely to get hurt as any other time. And then being a new starter, that's three to five times on top of that. That's nine to 15 times, you know, times the injury risk. And uh, we went back and forth on a little while. And, uh, yeah, I can be bullheaded and so can he. And, uh, you know, and 
we're, we're great friends, so it's not like we're adversarial. But we got into it, and I probably pushed too hard, pushed him the, the opposite way. Uh, and he was like, I don't care what you think. I've been doing this a long time. I'm starting her this week. I don't want to wait. And I said, okay. But just realize she's probably going to get hurt in the first half of the first half. And why did I say that? Dude, I don't know, man. I just, you know, it, it came out of my mouth, and I'm like, dude, you know what? I know she's going to get hurt, most likely, but I don't know if it's going to be the first half of the first half. Yeah, yeah. And then eight minutes into the first half, she dropped. And he's looking at me, and I'm like, dude, I told you. And, uh, you know, and, and we lost her for three weeks. Yeah. And uh, there's other time, things like that that he and I had gone around that uh, – gave me some fantastic value and uh, value, whatever credibility with him. And that was just one of the things that further cemented it. You know, it's like we can, we can predict these sorts of things. You know, it, it's not magic. It's, it's science. And in terms of just managing that with athletes, I know like Patrick War speaks a lot about even just a basic, um, Palms questionnaire, like, uh, like, is there any strategies you know you think work very well from both objective and subjective standpoints? Are, are you, like, I know some people talk about looking at, you know, jump profiles to see where neural fatigue is at. And then obviously just even asking the athlete, or, or even I suppose a, a very logical thing of like, okay, I need a calendar, I need to know when all the exams are on, so that yeah. I can you know, schedule around that. Like, is there like what sort of protocols have you seen work or put in place or? Well, the, uh, the basic recommendation that we saw that worked here with the previous regime, and I say previous regime because we've had a head coaching change, uh, you know, and, and I'm establishing some good relationships with this staff as well. But uh, basically, if during those high-stress weeks, if you wanted to maintain intensity of practice, cut back on the time. If you wanted to maintain time, cut back on the intensity of practice. Within the strength training, don't count a deload week during finals or, you know, academically stressful period of time as, uh, as a deload, mm. right? Because they're already highly stressed. And also don't test during those weeks. Uh, I remember one specific incident whenever I was at a different school, uh, when it was just me and the head strength coach, we had this just kick-ass training cycle going on. And we were expecting that – you know, the way that guys were handling 92 and 95% on Prilipin, they, they were just down and up with that sucker. It was looking fast and strong. And then we have our deload week, and then we come in to test, and everybody goes into the tank, and they're getting pinned to 80-85%. We couldn't figure out what happened. Well, after we I ran this data, I look back at that training cycle because uh, I took all my stuff with me from the previous uh, institution. And uh, – that testing cycle was eight weeks into the semester, right? That was during midterms. Hmm. And no wonder they tanked. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, as far as the uh, the other things like you had asked about, uh, the first thing is, you know, obviously the wellness questionnaire like Patrick talks about. Yeah, POMS is something that you can do uh, every couple of weeks or every month, but it's pretty time-consuming. The athletes will, will lose interest. You could probably do the wellness questionnaire more often, so you've got that. You can open up the conversation whenever that changes uh another thing that you can do is find out yeah basically through conversations find out who gets really stressed about things yeah. and then work with them on stress management techniques and maybe it is uh getting them in with a psychologist rather than you 
mm. you know, getting them to the appropriate help, or maybe somebody has got, uh, you, you find out that somebody has probably got PTSD or they've got some other anxiety issues, yeah. and that way you can get them help on that. Yeah, and, then uh, and the, the reason I ask that is because like so many people are just like oh you know you, like, and like I love uh, HRV and all that but it's like a lot of people just don't have the budget to get that in with some of their teams as well you know like HRV is obviously you know something that can be oh, used yeah. from, from, from an objective standpoint but uh, yeah if you just look at the individual changes in the questionnaire don't look at the team change but look at the individual change in the questionnaire yeah. and it, it'll pop up man there, there's been some uh, I wish I could remember the study but uh, there was some pretty good agreement with HRV and, uh, and the, the wellness questionnaire. Matter mm-hmm. of fact, Andy Fry, uh, who is a overtraining extraordinaire researcher, uh, found that basically the uh, vigor, right, the desire to train was the only thing that matched up well with overtraining as far as performance goes. And that was the only way to really truly declare overtraining. It's, it's funny, too, because talking about stress, like I often say this to, to other people and when I'm talking to my students that, you know, the, the fact that we have such a, a, a highly uh, functioning brain as humans, and, and obviously that's what separates us from the rest of the animals the animal kingdom, it's, it's, both our, it's both our gift and our curse because right now as a gift, it's letting us speak through a medium like this, like using computers and through Skype, but then it's a curse in that we, we can start having stress responses about events that will, won't even actually even happen. Like we, yeah. we, we can actually start to invent stories in our head that we have stress responses to. And like these events could never, might never ever happen in our life. Like, you know, and then you're, you're having a, a, a present moment stress response to it. And it's just that uh, your, your body, as you know, as well as anyone and a lot of listeners, like, your body can't differentiate between a physical and psychological stress. So it's just going, it's, it's just burning the same pathway again. And I just think then like w- when you, when you sit back and realize that that's, that pretty much is based off the physiology we know that that's a fact it's factual that we kind of got to start appreciating these outside stressors so much more with our athletes and even in our own lives in terms of exams and relationships and not just again being in that narrow focus of you know just seeing training as the only stress in someone's life because as you just mentioned earlier on people some people see their 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 exams as a deload like, and I remember, one, yeah. I remember one coach said to me, oh, uh, you don't need to deload. Your athletes take holidays and they get sick and they travel. And then I was like, hold on, hold on. They get sick and they travel. Do you think getting sick is a deload or traveling is a deload? Like, what do you feel like after a plane ride? Do you feel like shit? So you do. So, like, just, yeah. uh, again, that we're not really appreciating, like, how all these stressors combine to, to, uh, to, to obviously enhance our risk of getting an illness or an injury and impede our, our training. So... Yeah, stress think, is a syndrome, man. It, yeah. it all comes from the same source. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you just brought up there that uh, I neglected to mention, I think I, I talked about it in March, was the, uh, the the studies that have found the mitigating effect of social support on mm-hmm. uh, stress mm-hmm. and injury. And basically the people that had a good social support system, uh, typically family, uh, were the ones who basically they didn't get affected by uh, the stress yeah. uh, in the same manner as far as injury and illness. Because they were able to process through it, so then once they process through it, that stressor is no longer there. You know, it's like the the lion with the uh, the zebra on the savanna. You know, there's no lion, there's no stress. There's only stress when there's the lion. Once it's processed through, it's gone. Yeah. Uh, just uh, just before we finish up, I I pulled up that Emerson quote because I love it so much that, that, that we we're talking about principles versus methods and it's it's the man who grasps principles can successfully handle his own methods. The man who tries methods ignoring principles 
is sure to have trouble. And just to the listeners, I kind of rambled on there halfway through the show about me going back and, and studying like more, a lot more science and getting more grounded in the principles of like physiology and, and all the other sciences. And the reason was that was because there was a funny noise going on and it was throwing me off. So I was like, I'm mumbling about this point for ages. And I think everyone gets the points I'm trying to make. So, <laughs> and, you know, and speaking about like this idea of instant gratification, like, like again, I've spoken about this with so many other guests, that, you know, uh, this concept of mastery and the fact that we're in like such a social media bubble and everything wants everybody wants everything or everyone wants everything now 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 that they're skipping over these fundamental steps in mastery that you got to put like these these you know these hours and these weeks and months and years in to really master your field and, and in terms of me and you in terms of sports science and sports performance reading textbooks that are surrounded around physiology is going to be a part of that uh, mastery so it's, it's something that we've got to delay the gratification for so that's what i was trying to make the point on earlier on and i'm sure you're in full agreement yeah. with that uh brian listen uh, i gotta go get something to eat because i'm gonna eat my hand here <laughs> and uh, sounds good i'm sure you you gotta you got some work to do but that was absolutely amazing and again i'd love to have you on more regularly as a kind of a more uh, frequent guest um i know you're on a lot of our podcasts but I felt that we touched on a lot of areas that you don't really touch on in the other the other shows. Definitely, the, the muscle physiology is fascinating to me, and you know the little bit of stress. I know you spoke about that in Martin's podcast, but I, I really enjoyed that. And obviously, anything that's new or coming up, if, if anything that you really like to just articulate or get to the masses, I'll, I'll always have you back on here. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, right, well, thank you, Robbie. Appreciate it. So just uh, just stay online there for one more minute, and I'll just wrap up the show. So, guys, Dr. Brian Mann gave up another hour and ten minutes of his time to come on to this show. He's, you know, he's on some of your podcasts. He's got an extremely busy schedule, as you heard. Like when, when he had to go to Altus, he couldn't take the full week because of his teaching and his coaching and his research and whatnot. So, um, you know, I'm really, really uh, delighted to have him back on and, and give me the time of day. And literally just messaged him in a, a few days ago when he got back to me right away and made this happen. So that's the type of guy he is. So for everyone listening, please, uh, you know, keep helping with the podcast by just sharing it, uh, subscribe on iTunes, leave a review and all that stuff on social media. So until next time, guys. Take care, be well, and stay strong. And thanks to Dr. Brian.